Hello and welcome to Afroqueer. I'm your host, Sally Chum. Over the last few weeks, Uganda has been back in the news. Some politicians in the country have called for a plan to reintroduce a harsh anti-homosexuality law, infamously called the Kill the Gays Bill. That bill was struck down in 2014. But this new rhetoric has sparked an uptick of violence towards the Ugandan queer community. In the last couple of weeks, an LGBTQ activist, Brian Waswa, was murdered. And others have been the victims of mob violence and intimidation, illustrating the real-life implications of homophobic hate speech on the queer community in Uganda. In today's episode of Afroqueer, we follow the story of a gay Ugandan man who fled his country in search of a safe place. Here's producer Ida Halinambi. So I'm in a neighborhood called Westlands in Nairobi, Kenya. And this is where I live and work. Most days, I try to walk to work, even though, to be honest, it's not the most scenic of routes because it takes me along a highway called Waiaki Way. It's a super busy road, especially at rush hour. About halfway through my walk, I pass this building. It looks like a normal office block, you know, big, boxy, beige, and it faces the highway. But on most days lately, there are people protesting outside. They come and protest here because it's the headquarters of UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency in Kenya. Every now and again, the Kenyan police will come and forcibly disperse the protest using things like tear gas, beating people, and arresting most of the protesters. But a few days later, the protesters will be back again. The protesters are LGBT refugees from Uganda. They come to Kenya to seek safety and to apply for resettlement to countries like Australia, Sweden, and the United States. But they have been met with discrimination, confusion, and a long, long wait. Uh, I'm called Wamala Bashir, Edwin Gibson, and um, I'm, I'm a Ugandan. This is Gibson. He's 32 years old, super friendly and warm, and has one of those reassuring and welcoming smiles. He's a gay Ugandan refugee in Kenya who inadvertently became an activist. Gibson would end up being behind one of the most audacious events that has ever taken place inside of a refugee camp. This is Gibson's story. I grew up from Kampala uh, in the area called Kasubi. Gibson grew up in a really large family. They were really close and his life revolved around church and school. And I most spent most of my time at school at that church school because she was a single parent and she had so many kids. Gibson knew he was attracted to other men from a young age and he had his first relationships when he was still a teenager. Knowing that this would not go down well in his deeply religious household, Gibson kept this side of himself hidden from his family. Until one day when they were all at home. Uh, we were having supper and then 
one of my boyfriends called. Gibson is a charming guy and has always attracted people to him, despite coming of age in a country hostile to gay men. By his mid-teens, he was happily dating a guy he had met at school. Unfortunately, I had left my phone on the dining table and we were having supper with my mom, so she picked up. His mom heard a man's voice on the other end. When she hung up, she was furious. And then she told me, um, do you use men or women? That was the question. Who do you go to bed with? And then she, I, I told her I use men. So she told me, I don't even associate with people who use men. You know, that is not nature. You're not supposed to use men. You're supposed to use women. You're going to shame me. You're going to shame my entire family when people get to realize this. He tried to reason with his mom. I tried to explain to her that that is me, that's my nature, and I cannot change anything about it. But she wouldn't listen. She changed completely. She was so bitter at me. And she told me, I want you to leave. Gibson was shocked. He knew she would be upset, but he didn't think she'd disown her own son. But what she said next shocked him even more. And on that day, that's when she revealed to me that your dad brought you here when you were two years and I received you. I'm your auntie. I never knew that my brother can produce such a, such a kid. So on that day, that's when she revealed to me and she ensured that I don't come any closer to her. I was 17. Gibson discovered the woman who had raised him, the woman who all his life he had thought was his mom, was actually his aunt. She kicked him out of her house and he began to live alone. Though, of course, his heart remained with his family. I wanted to go back to that place, to my home, because it was what I referring to as a home. I tried to go there on a Christmas day. I knew that during festive seasons, they always gather at home, they get together. So I, I wanted to use that chance also to be part of them. I didn't hesitate. I just went home. So when my brother saw me, he was so bitter. He was, he's here. They chased me. They wanted to beat me up. Then I ran back, and that was my end of them, of seeing them, because they were so violent. Without a family to support him, Gibson found a job working at a religious school. He also started seeing a guy. His name was Simon. Um, he used to ask me for pocket money and he used to love luxuries a lot, like good clothes, good shoes. So uh, half of my salary was going on Simon. A generous person, at first Gibson enjoyed lavishing gifts on his boyfriend. It was really satisfying being able to provide for Simon. But then things took a turn. In time reached when I cannot afford what he's demanding. And he used to threaten me, when you don't give me this, this is going to happen. When you don't give me this, this is going to happen to you. I will make sure that I expose you. I will make sure that everyone gets to know what we are doing. And you reined me into this. Simon started blackmailing Gibson. 
he threatened to tell the police that because Gibson was a couple of years older than him and wealthier than him, he had forced him into a relationship. Gibson did not expect Simon to go through with these threats. But the next thing he knew, Simon had reported Gibson to his employers and then to the police. So the next day, I was called in the office by my boss and told me that someone is claiming that you've been using him. Gibson did the only thing he could do. He denied it. All of it. The relationship with Simon, being gay, everything. So I didn't want to expose myself. I had to reject because I I was protecting myself. Simon, Simon's dad, his bosses, the church leaders and the police had come for Gibson. But I just stood firm and I prayed that God may protect me. After hours of interrogating him, the police let Gibson go. They couldn't prove that he was gay on that day. But Gibson knew that this wouldn't be the end of it. It had become clear to him that Kampala, a city he had thought of as home, was not going to be his refuge. He applied for a job at a fuel station called Total and sought a transfer out of the city to a town in western Uganda, Kibale. I was... uh... 23. Gibson was now living five hours west of Kampala. He was doing okay for a while. Some of his colleagues suspected he was gay, but mostly he felt safe. Until one day, a man showed up at his job. Because I was working in a mat, total mat. I was on the till and Jean was in the background of the shop. A car pulled up at the petrol station and Gibson's colleague Jean went to attend to it. So when he went out, after a few seconds, I heard him screaming. He was touching his face and they had burnt it with acid. Acid attacks are sadly not uncommon in Uganda. So he was touching his face and only mentioning my name and everyone was asking, what is happening? Who is Bashir? The attacker had mistaken Jean for Gibson, who also goes by the name Bashir. And when I went out, I, he was saying that whoever has done this to me has mentioned your name, that Bashir, it is ending today. So he cried and he was mentioning that over and over again and people started gathering. You know, in UG, in Uganda, when, um, when people gather, when there is a situation, they just do mob justice. So I didn't wait for all that. I just ran back to the shop and I opened the counter. My boss had left me with change and I just removed that money because I knew what was going to happen next. Gibson was afraid that the gathering crowd would mistake him for the attacker because Jean kept screaming his name. He did not want to get beaten by an angry mob. I don't know who did that, who poured acid to Jean, but... My instincts always tell me maybe Simon's dad did something. All Gibson knew for sure was that he had to get out. I had nothing with me apart from the total uniform, my trouser, and 70,000. At that time, 70,000 Uganda shillings was roughly about 30 US dollars. The little money that I was remaining with could only just transport me to another country, that is Kenya, which is nearby. So I boarded and I left Kampala 
So Gibson packed his bags and headed for Nairobi, the capital city of neighboring Kenya. So uh, when I reached Nairobi, I was just seeing tall buildings, people busy doing work. People are speaking a different language from the one I know. I found it hard for me to mingle with people around. And unfortunately, I was arrested by the police. The police had picked him up for loitering on the streets. I thought I was going to the prison. They just took me to um, Refugee Affairs Department of Kenya. When we reached inside, they asked me, what's your problem? I told them I cannot go back because of what is happening to me and I'm tired of it. So they gave me my very first document and that document was directing me to go to Kakuma refugee camp. Kakuma is a refugee camp in the Turkana region of Kenya. It's a two-day drive from Nairobi in a desolate, dry and neglected part of the country. When I heard of Kakuma refugee camp, I didn't know what it means. I've never been a refugee. I saw some Ugandans and I told, I showed them what they had given me. And then they told me, you don't need to go there because they will kill you from there. That place is not a joke. This is the especially awful paradox for LGBT asylum seekers like Gibson. The place he's supposed to flee to carries the same threats he's fleeing from. Kakuma is one of the largest refugee camps in the world, over 150,000 people. Historically, Kakuma has not been a great place for queer refugees. Since 2014, hundreds of queer Ugandans have come to Kenya to seek asylum. From here, they apply for resettlement to countries that accept LGBT refugees. In order to be considered a refugee, you have to leave your home country. So for many Ugandan queer asylum seekers, Kenya is a waiting room. And you don't know how long that wait is going to be. Even some UNHCR personnel were telling Gibson not to go to Kakuma. So he didn't go at first. But he found Nairobi a difficult place to survive. I used to sleep uh, empty stomach for several days. I used to be harassed, be attacked. I found life so hard for me in Nairobi, isolating myself from my friends and then shifting severally. I, something came to my mind and I was like, maybe in the camp I can have protection within UNHCR. Okay. And then I decided to relocate. Gibson and a few other queer Ugandans got on a bus to make the two-day trip to Kakuma. So when we reached Kakuma town, uh, the bus got a flat tire and we had to stop over there. There's a total of 16 of them on the bus and six of them are transgender women. Uh, you know, we were having a private uh, transportation and everyone was free to dress up in any way he wants, any way he feels like or she feels like. While they are fixing the tire in Takana, some of them get off the bus and go to use the bathroom. And by the time they get back, 
a crowd has started to form. So when they came back, they started stoning the bus, and I was in the bus as well. We found ways of uh, protecting ourselves. We locked up the bus mirrors. The bus driver was uh, trying to chase away, but they were stoning heavily. It wasn't a good start. Eventually, after being processed, Gibson is sent to Protection Area B, the part of the camp that houses around 200 LGBT refugees. They used to construct for us sheds, set up a shelter, and in that shelter, someone is free to sleep there till morning. Gibson and the others try to settle in, as well as they can. But conditions in their makeshift homes are tough. And with the endless waiting game, morale is low. Most of them rarely leave Protection Area B, because when they do, they are harassed, abused, or humiliated. People had unrests. They felt confined in one place. And so he starts referring to himself and fellow refugees as inmates. Things get worse. One of his friends attempts suicide. Gibson wanted to do something, anything, to lift morale. So he comes up with an idea. An idea that's as brave as it is mad. I came up with an idea of uh, organizing a gay pride parade. Had you ever been to a gay pride parade before? I've never been to a gay pride parade before, but I am very aware that they were intending to create awareness and then fight for our rights and dignity. Over time in the camp, Gibson had become a leader, a spokesperson for the LGBT community in Kakuma. He would go to camp meetings and talk to government bodies and NGOs, but none of the people he was meeting really seemed to care. Gibson thought that a Pride event might just be a large-scale way to get them to care. He set a date. In 2018, June. He got permission to march from the Kenyan police inside the camp, a security detail to protect the marchers, and he crowdsourced funds to provide food, tents, and music for the day. Gibson prepared to hold the first-ever gay pride in a refugee camp. And on that day, I woke up in the morning, took a very cold shower, because I wanted to be fresh that day. I wanted everything to run on smoothly. And people were all dressed in rainbow colors. I had got some whistles. I had got different flags, like the uh, transgender flag, rainbow flag. And we had flyers, uh, we had music, and then still we had our own local drums of jerrycans and all that So I was hosting 600 guests, and on this Pride event, 200 were LGBTI refugees from different nationalities, from South Sudan, from Somalia, from Ethiopia, and Burundi, with Ugandans. Ugandans are the majority and so out and proud of what they are. So uh, the marching started at around 11, around the camp, and people are so excited in their rainbow colors. Uh, we started marching, few in numbers, and then people started joining in, joining in, and then the crowd became big. Uh, we were joined by the host community, the Trukanas. 
after the marching, we moved around different premises in the camp and then went back to our gathering area in the premises adjacent protection area B. We started having entertainment, uh, drag, you know, we had drag queens, the slaying and showing off. How were people responding to the drag queens? Oh, there was a lot of screaming and screaming from the audience. Then people uh, were so curious, people were so surprised to see people who are dressing that way, looking that way, and they were so surprised. We had speeches from different NGOs and units here and the government. They had a speech from me and some of my few community members talking about who we are, what we are. We have no harm. We are like any other human being. Gibson thought the event went off pretty well. But later that evening, he heard that a trans woman who was at the parade was viciously beaten. Four days later, a note was taped to the camp notice board. It said, you must leave the camp as you have spoiled our religion and our children. If you do not leave, we will kill you one by one. And we mean it. Enough is enough. So we, don't, we didn't know where the message came from, who wrote it. People were like trying to complain that could it be the event? Because now it was coming back to me, the organizer of the event. Could it be the event that has brought all this? Gibson had tried to do something positive, something that people would enjoy. But there were consequences. Consequences for his community and for him and his position in the camp. And I started getting... Uh, different letters from different people within the protection area be my colleagues and amongst the letters they were trying to put letters of vote of no confidence he'd lost his authority as a community organizer in kakuma people were blaming him for the fallout from the event he felt it was time to move on again so i stepped down and then i requested for a relocation from Kakuma refugee camp back to Nairobi because everyone was, you know, looking at me as a nuisance. You know, I being attacked by my own people and then at the same time being attacked by the police because I was branded. People knew me because I was walking all over the camp trying to spread what we are and what we want. We are human beings. So I was branded. I used to get confrontations from my own people. I used to be attacked by heterosexual refugees. I used to be attacked by the police. Gibson traveled back to Nairobi. Actually, I personally, I don't regret have, have gone to Kakoma because uh, and you get to learn a lot of lessons because it is the survival of the fittest. And if you... Uh, if you're kiddish in any way, you mature when you're in Kakuma. So I don't regret because I matured. It's been a year since Gibson organized the first ever Pride event in a refugee camp. A lot has changed for him since then. Today, he lives in Nyeri, a Kenyan county three hours north of Nairobi. From Kampala to Kibale to Nairobi and Kakuma and back again, 
all Gibson has wanted is a place to be safe. In Nyeri, he's trying to make this a reality not just for himself, but for others as well. I had a dream of making three community houses to help out my other friends who have left Kakuma. So if I have one. Through crowdfunding and support of friends and allies in his networks, Gibson has created a safe house in Nyeri. It houses transgender, gay and lesbian asylum seekers and is also a community space for Kenyan LGBT people in the surrounding area. When we have safe space in an area for rehabilitation, for people to rehabilitate, people to be counseled, most of the people are traumatized because of what they go through. While Gibson does this work, he's still waiting. After leaving Kakuma, engaging with emails, I was called for a resettlement interview. And I'm, I'm in the procedures of resettlement pathways. Uh, I'm not yet sure of where I'm going, but I know I'll go somewhere where they accept me the way I am to express my ways in any given manner, anywhere freely. And then maybe after that moment, I will have to do something for myself. This story was produced by me, Sally Chum, Ida Halinambi, and Mae Francis. Rachel Wamoto runs our social media. Sound design by Tevin Sudi. Brian Nature Raymond assisted with research for this story. Season two of the Afroqueer podcast is made possible with support from Google, PRX, Hivos, and the Dune Foundation. Our theme song, Power, is by Maya and the Big Sky. Additional music by Muthoni, the drummer queen. Follow Afroqueer Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and on our website, www.afroqueerpodcast.com. I'm Sally Chum. Thanks for listening. Oh,